Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from pioneers in the field of eating disorders who are part of building the modern day foundation of our field. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University. I'm the host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders, and I'm pleased to be collaborating with multiple eating disorder organizations and communities on this series. Our goal is to capture the narrative history of our field from those who were the pioneers in building the modern foundation of our understanding of eating disorders. People will share with us from the beginning their personal and professional journeys, experiences, reflections, and ideas that never quite get represented in this way in the standard academic publications. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Craig Johnson. Dr. Johnson is Senior Clinical Advisor at the Eating Recovery Center in Denver, Colorado, and Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Oklahoma Medical School. Dr. Johnson has been a leader in the field of eating disorders for over 40 years. He has been involved with really building the core structures and systems and programs that establish the foundation of our field. It's really a huge honor to have Dr. Johnson with us, and he could talk with us about many big ideas in eating disorders. We're going to start at the beginning. Uh, first, to say welcome, Dr. Johnson. Welcome, Craig. So thrilled to have you here. And uh, would like to begin with the opening question of how did you get to eating disorders from a career, a academic career in psychology? What got you to the field of eating disorders? Thank you for hosting this, I think, important uh, series uh, overall. I got started in the field or became interested in it in 1975. I was finishing my third year of graduate school and my clinical exposure up to that point really had been pretty much a college counseling center, community mental health center, outpatient. I had a roommate that had gone to the University of Minnesota, you know, to do his internship. And I, mm -hmm. in conversation with him at one point, asked if he could get me a job as a psych tech on the inpatient unit at the University of Minnesota Medical School, you know, inpatient psychiatric unit, right. which he did. So I traveled to Minnesota and joined the, the general inpatient unit, which had adjoining to it Station 61, which was the experimental unit that had been that was being developed by Dr. Elka Eckhart as part of the Tri-City Grant from the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, looking at the use of behavior therapy and cyproheptidine in the treatment of anorexia nervosa. I just want to mention that, to my knowledge, this was the largest grant that had been awarded to women psychiatrists, you know, in the history of NIMH. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's accurate. It certainly was one of the largest, if not the largest. Mm -hmm. So my job, I floated between the general adult unit and the anorexia nervosa unit. I went to Minnesota with an interest in schizophrenia, uh, particularly thought disorder with uh, even a little more interest in delusional disorder in particular. So when I entered the unit, 
I, I had no familiarity with anorexia nervosa, which actually was characteristic of many folks, mm-hmm. you know, that worked in psychiatry and psychology at the time. Anorexia nervosa was a very, very rare disorder, you know, and so to see a collection of them in one place um, and an awareness that there was basically very little evidence base mm-hmm. around how to be helpful to these folks overall. And clearly, you know, there seemed to be an increase in the prevalence of it such that actually it would support three different units, you know, one at the University of Minnesota, Kathy Helmich's unit at the University of Iowa, and Regina Casper's unit at Illinois State Psychiatric Institute. So as I was spending time over there, I got really interested in what I started to think of as a circumscribed delusional system in a paranoid state in old DSM-2 terms. So it would fit in with my sort of interest in thought disorder and just an intriguing illness overall. This is, this is your observation early on for, as you were seeing patients with what we now call anorexia nervosa. Yes. Got it. it well, the anorexia And you're seeing was, it in terms of through the lens of delusional psychosis. That, that was my own interest. So yeah. I'm bringing that lens, you right. know, to I really, nobody had a really clear idea of what was going on, yeah. you know, with it overall. And I mentioned this because the schizophrenia link throughout my career actually was important uh, for a variety of reasons. Important. Yeah, tell us how the schizophrenia foundations was important in terms of your early understanding of eating disorders and throughout your career. Terrific. Um, so I did have one patient that uh, I was, you know, psych tech for on the anorexia nervosa unit that was very memorable. She was 17. And this patient, actually, she would do well until about the time that it was getting ready for discharge. And there was not any substantial family involvement. This was an era where basically our communication to the families were deliver your kids, we'll fix them and turn them back over to you. So not a huge, not any really family involvement overall. So every time she got near the door and her dad in particular started coming around, she would just drop her weight like a rock. And she did this several times. The unit kind of got frustrated with her. So they transferred her over to the general adult unit. And I, of course, floated over with her. So I continued to have involvement with her. And when all was said and done, she was discharged, not in good shape. And I walked away, you know, from the unit at the end of this summer, you know, feeling like we just weren't asking the right questions. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a patient I followed up over, you know, for a number of years. And she became chronically anorexic in uh, Minneapolis community. And sure enough, you know, what we found out was that she was being sexually abused by her father, which in 1975, by the way, sexual abuse didn't exist. There was no duty to report. It was not part of our, you know, intake questionnaires. It just was not in the consciousness, you know, of mental health, to tell you the truth. You said, Craig, we weren't asking the right questions. Right. So 
it sounds like one of the questions would have been about family, more understanding around family. What were the other questions that you wish you had asked then or that you learned to ask? Trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the nature and extent of potential trauma, you know, in the system overall? And if we find trauma, you know, our duty to report and try to do something about that, you know, overall, which is a late, late kind of event in Mm -hmm. mental health in the United States, just overall. So I left, when I left, uh, I subsequently went to uh, Michael Reese Medical Center, uh, part of one of the teaching hospitals for the University of Chicago. And and while I was there, uh, I joined a research group that was uh, headed by Dr. Roy Grinker, who was actually the founding editor of the Archives of General Psychiatry and the founder of the Psychosomatic and Psychiatric Institute, you know, at Michael Reese. And he had a grant looking at borderline schizophrenia. Now, this is 76 now. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in, you know, the meeting because we were out uh, looking for atypical schizophrenia patients. And in that net, we were basically collecting up uh, patients that had anorexia nervosa and the soon to appear variant bulimia nervosa. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'll never forget Dr. Grinker said, you know, I've spent my whole career, you know, working in psychiatry and I've never seen a patient with anorexia nervosa. You know, and now all of a sudden, you know, we're seeing a, a, a large number of them. Mm-hmm. Somebody should take a look at that. Mm-hmm. A colleague by the name of Don Schwartz actually was the director of this particular research project. Uh, he noted it. And another of my colleagues that was an intern with me uh, by the name of Michael Thompson mm-hmm. uh, noted it as well. And Michael actually picked up on Dr. Grinker's comment and elected to do his dissertation on looking at more atypical forms of anorexia nervosa. Mm -hmm. The next big event was that Dr. Hilda Brook Mm -hmm. came to do grand rounds in 1978 and her ground rounds was on schizophrenia, not on eating disorders. Yes, because schizophrenia was her original background. I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So I had the wonderful privilege, you know, of actually spending an afternoon, you know, with her as a fellow, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, after she had done her grand rounds and uh, we, we really struck it off and she really kindled, you know, my interest in anorexia nervosa in that moment. It it sounds to me like we're moving into your big idea, yes. which as I understand and I think about the big idea that you want to focus on, I really think of you as a builder, this big idea about what it takes to build a field. So tell us how you became someone who built, you know, roads and bridges. What what are the roads and bridges that were so essential to you as you think about the field of eating disorders? First and foremost, I mean, I was an academician. My, my, my path was uh, academic medicine. 
you know, and I had, a, I came to Chicago, back to Chicago with an appointment as assistant professor at the University of Chicago. So I was committed to trying to advance the science. Mm-hmm. So the journal was a good fit for me because the program was first and foremost going to be focused on trying to do research. We were starting to add a treatment component, but really, you know, the first priority was to try to advance the science. If I was looking forward, here's what I knew. I knew there was no journal. I knew that there was no professional organization. Mm -hmm. I knew that the advocacy organization, which were really carrying the water, you know, for an emerging field were fragmented. We didn't have an an American Heart Association or American Cancer Society. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, overall, we had four or five uh, fragmented advocacy organizations. Did the journal from the beginning have the name it has today? It did. And so how did you, as a 29-year-old in a field that didn't quite have a name, know that it needed to be the International Journal of Eating Disorders? How did you know that it was an international issue phenomenon and that you wanted to have that kind of reach? Well, in my very brief time in the field, I'd had the privilege of interfacing with Gerald Russell and Arthur Chris in London and Paul Garfinkel and David Garner in Toronto, Walter Van Der Ricken in Belgium. I mean, it was uh, very quickly, you know, I had an opportunity to interface with international colleagues that were out there in Everybody was experiencing the same thing. Chris Fairbairn and I appeared in a conference in 1981, and unbeknownst to either one, we didn't know each other. We didn't know what the other one was going to be presenting on. I presented first on a large community sample that we derived from those 5,000 inquiries, Mm -hmm. you know, that came in in 1980. And subsequent following me, Chris presented on a community sample that he had been working on in terms of uh, the nature and extent of the illness. Our findings were within tenths of a percentage points identical. Mm -hmm. It was uncanny, particularly for this normal weighted bulimia nervosa population, Mm -hmm. which the group, Dr. Russell and Dr. Crisp and, you know, the anorexia nervosa people were somewhat incredulous, you know, of the size and scope of the population of patients that didn't have weight disorders because bulimia nervosa was really being framed up as a variant of anorexia nervosa Mm -hmm. overall. So Mm -hmm. this was opening a whole other sort of dimension of the spectrum. So I was networked pretty internationally pretty quickly. So it was an easy, it was an easy call. And it was very clear that it needed to be generic eating disorders. Uh-huh. You right. know, and right. one of the and one of the things that I'm particularly proud of was that it, in an effort to not only present people with four or five or six or seven or however many articles we were doing in the early journals, we I created a recent research section, Mm -hmm. which what we did was there was a new search mechanism called Institute for Scientific Information. 
mm-hmm. which w- rounded up across Index Medicus and Psych Abstracts and whatever the main abstracting you know groups were at that point. We could use it to round up all of the articles that had been written in the field of eating disorders. And every quarter we published all of the articles that have been published in the last three months, you know, in the field of eating disorders. So with whatever articles that we were presenting, they basically got essentially the the citations, you know, Uh for the research that was going on. Uh, This actually won an award in the publishing industry, you know, as an innovative, you know, strategy in a new journal and a new field was to collect the information and disseminate it, you know, in that way. It's quite remarkable that at the time you could claim to have the body of knowledge represented in this one place and could keep up with it in the way that you're describing compared to the explosion of research today on the field and how many tentacles there are in terms of figuring out who's doing what and what we're we're learning about the field. That road was built mm-hmm. you know, the International Journal of Eating Disorder. So in 1983 then, uh, Preston Zucker, Zucker, a gastroenterologist in the New York area who had Montefiore Hospital, who had been the go-to person for most of the patients with anorexia nervosa that were being hospitalized at the time, uh, paired up with uh, Ken Schoenberg, Dr. Ken Schoenberg, who was the director of the adolescent medicine division of Albert Einstein's College of Medicine. Mm -hmm. And they called me in 1983 and asked if I would be willing to co-sponsor with the journal, the development of an international conference on eating disorders you know, that would uh, be professionally sort of organized and uh, led, et cetera, um, would occur every two years in the beginning, uh, which I agreed to and committed the journal to actually publishing the proceedings, Mm -hmm. you know, from the conference in the early days. So in Dr. Schoenberg, Ken, was going to fund the project out of the adolescent medicine division uh, budget. Mm-hmm. So he, he was willing to take the risk that we could pull off a conference, you know, that wasn't, you know, a total disaster from a financial perspective. <laughs> so we went about doing this. Now, mind you that uh, they were involved with all of the uh, uh, development are all of the logistics of, of the conference setting, uh, I was responsible for the content alone. <laughs> you alone. <laughs> Me alone. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I recruited Mike Strober, who actually I was in conversation with uh, as heir apparent, you know, to becoming editor of the IJED in the next couple of years, because uh-huh. I, I knew I was, the journal was outgrowing and and there were other things I was interested in doing. Um, So I brought Mike into the mix and Joel, of course, who was at UCLA as well. So the three of us, Joel Yeager, 
yes, Joel Yeager. We began we began framing up what plenaries we wanted. And really, most importantly, we were very committed to having the bulk of the conference being paper presentations, mm-hmm. you know, of uh, all, uh, all new researchers. We wanted to give everybody as much opportunity to, you know, stand in a room and quickly present work that they were doing. And actually those paper presentations really became the grist for the publication mill. And it created opportunity for many, many people to get their work represented at both at the conference and ultimately in publication. Uh, the synergy was spectacular. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it was uh, it was very exciting. And so anyway, these were great conferences. Barbizon Hotel in New York. Uh, I don't think it exists anymore, but I am sure it was wonderful in its day. Well, interesting. Apparently, it was built as a women's residence. Uh huh. Back in the 30s, as as only women, you know, Mm -hmm. hotel for women. Quite fitting. Yes, exactly. And what, Craig, what can you say, actually, just to touch on that for the meeting itself and as you were building out the editorial board for the journal? The, this is a field that we understood as being especially significant in terms of women's development. Who were the women who were part of that early story and both at the journal and at the conference? Well, certainly Kathy Halmy, mm-hmm. Regina Casper, Elka Eckert, uh, Susan and Wayne Woolley. Mm-hmm. I had on the initial board, I was particularly interested in Susan's early sort of uh, pressure around feminist issues. Mm-hmm. She was kind of the tip of the spear in some ways for uh, women's issues in that regard. Joelle Grinker, uh, Margot Main, Amy Baker Dennis. Um, and by the way, the editorial board, once we got that initial uh, issue out in autumn of 81, uh, then we started really expanding. The mm-hmm. editorial board and and you know your uh, usual suspects of you know thought leaders in the field were, were coming on board, which was Walt Cage and Mitchell, Ken Walsh, uh, that next generation of folks, Howard Steiger, actually Marion Olmsted in Toronto, mm-hmm. Alan Kaplan, like Woodside. It, that was sort of that group. It, yeah, you were you were kind of one. Just one, one, just right behind them. So I was thinking the international conference, the first conference was 1984. So 1984 was the first international conference. And by 1994, Mike Devlin and I were working with Ken and Preston as the program co-chairs. Yes. So we inherited your, exactly. your yes. legacy there. We carried forward your legacy. And Mike Devlin and I were co-chairs for several conferences yes. in the 1990s. So I very much appreciate the way in which the the you know the historical generations, right? And, exactly. uh, and the growth. And by the time Mike and I were co-chairing the conference, 
the it was a well-established system of building out a scientific advisory board and the conference had grown substantially at that point to include hundreds of participants and now over a thousand at these conferences so tell us about getting to back to tulsa and what the next piece in this roads and bridges Yes. Foundation was. The the next big event that happened when Clinton was elected in 1992, he was one of his initiatives or platforms, you know, for from his campaign was to develop a national health care system. So immediately when he was inaugurated, he established the health care reform initiative and appointed his wife, Hillary Clinton you know, to head up that initiative to move to a single-payer healthcare system. So the first thing that she did with that agenda uh, was to start consensus building and reaching out to, to talk with various representatives of all of the illnesses, including mental illnesses, you know, that a healthcare system was faced with on an ongoing basis. And everybody was going to have a seat at the table around, you know, the conversation about where they would fit in to a national health care policy. Well, we, the only professional organization in the United States at that point was the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals, which was founded in 1985. And it came out of essentially the addictions field. Uh, from the group of uh, compulsive overeaters and Overeaters Anonymous. And the the focus really was using a 12-step model to try to address compulsive overeating. Uh, Now, they tried to morph into anorexia nervosa, you know, along the way, but it was really, uh, it it was totally in the tradition of the 12-step philosophy, not much sort of academic presence, not a lot of evidence space to support really what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was clear to me and a number of others that that really wasn't the only voice that we wanted at the table as a representation of a professional organization for the field of eating disorders. So uh, I mobilized, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and truthfully, what what actually allowed us to move quickly on this was that. Uh, Vivian Means, who was director of the Anorexia Nervosa and Associated Disorders Advocacy Organizations in Chicago, who I was very close with during my tenure, you know, in Chicago and worked closely with them. Um, She had been lobbying for years for us to develop a professional organization that was more academically oriented. And she had taken some preliminary steps led by Dr. Pat Santushi you know, around what, uh, you know, what a structure might look like for a professional organization. So Pat had been working on it for a little bit. So I I asked if we could use that as a jumping off point, you know, to rather than start with a blank piece of paper, let's look at a framework, you know, that, that had been, you know, thought about at least and see what worked and didn't work for folks. Mm-hmm. You know, and they agreed to that, you know, actually agreeing to the kind of the structure of the organization 
took us about four hours. And the other 16 to 20 hours was spent on what we're going to name it. (laughs) (laughs) So the other thing that was an important moment, uh, as far as I was concerned, and answers a little bit of a question that I get a lot, uh, was we elected a slate of officers. Since I had run the meeting, I was really wrangling the whole thing. You know, I, I was nominated to be the first president of the academy. And I felt that that was a mistake, you know, that it was important on our part, given the field as we knew it, you know, was overwhelmingly, you know, it was women that were affected by it and that we were working, you know, very hard to try to be sure that more women were in positions of leadership, you know, uh, as time was going on. I I declined and nominated Susan Woolley mm-hmm. to actually be the first president of the academy, which I talked with her about. She was reluctant, uh, but you know was somewhat willing. So uh, we elect, we elected her, you know, to be the first president. An hour later, she came to me and. You know, she had too many irons in the fire, and I, I completely understood. You know, we we reconvened and elected Pauline Powers, mm-hmm. you know, to be the first president of the academy, and she was a tremendous choice. Uh huh. So yeah, yeah, let's hear about the fourth piece of the roads and bridges that roads are part bridges. of this inter- infrastructure that you've been really the the mastermind of the dry run of actually trying to get ready for the national health care reform initiative, even though it failed, it, it demonstrated to us what was going to be necessary if there was another pass, you know, at a, a more national health care system overall. And we, we had the pieces in place from a professional organization, you know, perspective, the part that was still fragmented was the advocacy organizations. We didn't have a go-to American Heart Association or, you know, um, American Cancer Society, you know, equivalent in the United States. So in, in 94, Amy Baker Dennis, who was the director of the National Anorexic Aid Society, which became the National Eating Disorders Organization, you know, out of Columbus, Ohio. Amy had uh, turned it over to Laura Hill. It was faltering because Harding Hospital was closing. So she called and asked if Laureate would be willing to take in any DO. So for me, this was the opportunity to start a roll up, you know, of the advocacy organizations. And Laureate again agreed, you know, to fund and sponsor, you know, the support of that organization to their great credit. So we brought it to Tulsa. Within a year of having it there, Gene Rubel, who was the founder of ANRED, anorexia nervosa and related eating disorder out of Oregon, called me and asked if we would take ANRED as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so we agreed and merged and bred with NEDO. 
you know, so now we had basically two of the four that were out there at that point, uh, which was remaining was any source of awareness prevention and the American Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Bulimia, which was uh, uh, Estelle Miller's group out of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And ANAT. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were three still sitting out there. So I contacted Margot Main was head of EDAP at that particular point. And I contacted Margot and let her know what I was, you know, interested in doing, you know, was to consolidate and that. So Margot agreed to put me on the board with EDAP with the with the idea that we were going to merge all of these organizations into one. Uh, we brought uh, ABBA in and we completely rebranded, you know, the organizations as the National Eating Disorders Association. Mm-hmm. And uh, the information network, uh, all of things that you would look to for an American Heart Association, we were going to be trying to replicate, mm-hmm. you know, as well as participate in advocacy uh, mm-hmm. overall. And uh, what I really want to emphasize in here was how extraordinarily collaborative, you know, th- the field was in this moment, you know, of trying to do the right thing for the field, even though we all have our own competing interest on the deal. So the National Eating Disorders Association, once, once we accomplished the roll-up, you know, now is the you know, the central clearinghouse, you know, for inquiries about the illness, you know, sponsoring young investigator awards, uh, would have a seat at the table. You did have a seat at the table when uh, the Affordable Care Act was being discussed overall. So mission accomplished with the National Eating Disorders Association. So you've described for us really the roads and bridges of the field. Yes. You've described building a meeting, a a conference, a professional association, the Academy of Eating Disorders, and NIDA, the National Eating Disorders Association. As you think about these foundational structures that were put in place that you, it was a moment in time, you were, you, there's an expression, right, that uh, fortune favors those who are prepared. You were prepared and ready at the moment in time when the field needed to build its foundation. And kudos to you for stepping up and and moving us along. As As you think about the next generation, right? last question for you is what reflections, what ideas do you have about that things that you learned that you would like to be sure to pass on to the next generation and generations to come who will be continuing to advance our field of eating disorders? I I think first and foremost, you know, is to always keep in mind the biopsychosocial model. And I really think I spent my career mostly focused on working with more severe and enduring forms of the illness. And when we think about the biopsychosocial model, I think over the years, certainly in the early stages of the field, the weakest component of that was actually the bio and the biopsychosocial. 
And I think relief for those patients with the more severe forms, you know, of eating disorders on even some of that schizophrenia platform, you know, overall would have serious thought disorders uh, related to the illness or delusional systems or serious phobias, however you want to think about it, obsessional, you know, obsessive compulsive disorders, that I, I think that relief from them is going to come from the brain brain-based research. You know, so I'm I'm really a heavy supporter, you know, of, of funding continuing to be funneled in there. I had the great privilege of being one of the principal collaborators, you know, for the genetics collaborative study. And it, it really drove home, you know, the importance of us doing more brain-based research, you know, overall. I would also say, you know, the spirit of collaboration was something that really defined, you know, the eating disorders field over, you know, certainly the early stages of, you know, uh, my uh, experience with it. And I hope that we continue, you know, to protect, you know, and encourage that uh, we're all in the village together, you know, and that our, we have a common goal, you know, and that is to provide the best care, you know, with evidence-based treatment that we can for our patients, you know, and there's much that we still don't know, you know, so nobody I think has the right to be terribly arrogant, you know, about what the right thing to do is with these patients, you know, uh, particularly the more severe and enduring uh, patients. So humility, you know, and uh, uh, collaboration, uh, I, I would continue to advocate for that as well. Well, Humility and collaboration are evident in spades as you describe your contribution to building this foundation. And also the respect and appreciation, as you say, for the biopsychosocial model, understanding that there are many different lenses uh, that come together, many different threads that come together in the story of someone who has an eating disorder. And understanding all of those threads is going to be essential to moving the field forward, both in understanding and treatment. So really appreciate your helping set the foundation with such a solid understanding of the complexity of these disorders and with the humility and spirit of collaboration, Craig, it's really, we are indebted to you and uh, thank you very much for all that you've done for the field and for joining us today. Great, Kathy, and thank you for doing it again.